Ariel Katz describes his whole K-12 experience at a Manhattan prep school as one long, hazing journey. It may not have prepared him for college, since he attended three schools in three years and never really got his academic act together, but apparently it was fertile ground for entrepreneurship, since he started his first company without even realizing it was a company while he was still in college. Since then, he started H1, the largest global healthcare professional data ecosystem, and he was named a 30 under 30 by Forbes, which he describes as embarrassing. But actually, I thought he had some useful things to offer, including how to manage older people and how the Rambam's teachings apply to work-life balance today. I'm your host, David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group. If the show meets your expectations, please consider subscribing. Ariel Katz, CEO of H1. Welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. I'm excited to be here, David. Thanks for having me. Outstanding. So we're going to talk about uh, H1, which is, uh, I think, an exciting concept and a great, it'll be easy in the headline for the podcast. I'll have to have some other characters there. You got like a regular length name and a short length company name. So I'll have to throw in some adjectives or something. But <laughs> in any case, we'll talk about that. But I want to start by talking about your your background, your, your upbringing and any, uh, you know, what your upbringing was like and any childhood influences that have sort of stuck with you as you've uh, gone out on your own. Yeah. Um... So I grew up, grew up in New York, from New York, grew up in the city, uh, one of the few people to actually grow up in New York City, grew up in the Upper West Side. Um, I have two sisters, I'm right in the middle, uh, so oldest, younger sister. I'm one of those people that went to the same school, K through 12, my entire life. So I'm mentioning I'm Jewish, I went to this Jewish prep school. In New York City, you find these like prep schools, hotshot prep schools. I went to like this Jewish prep school, which is a mix between like a really Jewish organization and the school to try and get you into the best colleges. Um, Went through K through 12, uh, sort of like hazing. It's like yeah. once you're through it, it sticks with you and you, and you build stronger, you're callous because of it. So nothing in my life has been quite as hard as getting through that school, K through 12. The thing is, Ariel, you know, normally, like you're a young guy, but when you, when you deal with hazing, it's normally like a one-week thing. Now, that's 13 years of hazing. <laughs> that's, that's a heck of a lot of hazing. They wouldn't do things today like they did to me when I was a kid uh, back in the day. Uh, no, it's 13 years of hazing, but it makes you tough, thick-skinned. Uh, thick-skinned being in the Upper East Side, go through hazing. Um, and uh, it, like, it's when I went to college, I was like, wow, this is so much easier. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. I would, in school, I would get there at 8, which means I'd wake up at like 6.30, and we would end school at 5, and then I'd have like four hours of homework. Yeah. Uh, and that was my life for a long, since like seventh grade or eighth grade. Um, yeah, it's supposed to keep you out of trouble. And it's like, most people would tell me the traumatic part was being the sandwich between the two sisters, but that was that was nothing compared to being in school. Nothing compared to being in school. Uh, but you, the thing about hazing, you create a brotherhood. And so my best friends are still friends that I've been friends with for 20 years uh, because of this. Um, so I went there, and then I did three colleges in three years, uh, and then basically wanted to drop out my fourth. Uh, yeah. So I went to University of Pittsburgh, freshman year. Then I went to um, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And then I went to Binghamton University, which is where I started my junior year is when I started my first company. Um, summer, second semester, and then summer of junior year. Um, I didn't know it was a company at the time. I was just working on something with friends. And I didn't want to get a job. because I, I, I don't think I would be good in that environment. Uh, so we just started working on it and then never looked back. So if you if you had done a fourth year at college, where would it have been? I was in Binghamton my fourth year. I was just failing. 
Okay, uh, okay. There's straight D's, which is a good. Yeah. It's consistent. Well, it's, at like, least. it's nice and, you know, it's, I guess at least you didn't get an H. <laughs> <laughs> straight D's, missed a couple finals, yeah. missed a couple final papers, but uh, it was yeah. all good. Well, that's good. Well, at least the in-state tuition is reasonable, right, SUNY Binghamton? So exactly. you were uh, probably, I hope you're getting credit for that. They, they consider, you know, Manhattan, Upper West, or Upper East Side is still considered part of New York State, or at least it was when you were there. Is that right? That, that's correct, yeah, downstate. Yeah. yeah, so you get that. So, yeah, and sometimes, you know, like if you're from that area, you say, you think upstate, you're thinking that's like, you know, the Bronx or maybe White Plains, but, uh, you know, there's a whole upstate above that, too. That's exactly right, yeah. I, uh, I actually like my time at Binghamton. Very different experience because um, by the you transfer in junior year, you don't have any friends, you don't have a social life, and so all I did was throw myself into work, obsess- yeah. obsessively. So, 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 what was this project that was actually a company that you didn't realize it was a company? So, the summer of my sophomore year, I was I lived in the Upper West Side, and so I was doing research at Hawkins Lab at Columbia University. They were studying. There's only two labs in the U.S. at the time studying consciousness. There was mm-hmm. one up in Cornell, and there was one at Columbia, and I was just interested in it. Uh, and so I, I did research, and I was like, I'm a super qualified to research at Columbia. Binghamton's a good school, but Columbia's a more prolific academic institution. And I couldn't get involved in research at Binghamton. I was like, this is insane. That doesn't make any sense. I'm more qualified than all these other people. I didn't believe yeah. it. And so I said, screw this. I'm going to create a platform where researchers post research opportunities for students. And students can apply to those. Think about like Indeed for research opportunities. Uh, and then it expanded because I got involved with research using my own product, which was cool. And then I was like, now I want to get a PhD. I can't find out who to where do work with. This is insane. Yeah. And so I ended up creating a product, which is called Research Connection, which turned into a company uh, to help students get involved with research all around the country. That's pretty good. Now, you know, to get a PhD, you have to get a bachelor's first in most cases and sometimes a master's. <laughs> I know. Uh, and publish papers and do work in a lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I wasn't built. Uh, my body wasn't built for sitting in a lab all day and uh, with that. But, uh, and, and the whole PhD thought was just a thought. And, yeah. And I tried to like, go down. It's like I wanted a sandwich. I couldn't get a sandwich. So I needed to build a place to get me a sandwich. Uh, that's what it Okay. Like. All right. So, so yeah, I started with this company when you realized the project company, and then you left that at some point. Where did you Where did you leave things off with that company? I we finished college. Uh, I was a 22 year old with no money in New York City, uh, and so I was, we, me and like six other guys were like, we gotta go raise some money. So I went out there, raised about six hundred thousand dollars, five hundred six hundred thousand dollars from cold emails mostly. Yeah. Uh, cold emails, meeting with people at Starbucks's, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. So we raised some money, worked on Research Connection for about two and a half years after that. I mean, it, it got to a pretty solid scale. I mean, we got to hundreds of thousands of users every month, hundreds of thousands of students. And then we uh, didn't, uh, we we thought we could raise a Series A and raise a few more million bucks, but we didn't have the traction and the revenue or the users. Yeah. And so we decided to sell that business and sell the assets of it. Um, so that. That's what happened with Research Connection. Great. And then and then what after that? Then I took six months off. I was bumbling around New York and India and yeah. the Midwest, everywhere. Uh, and then I met my current co-founder, Ian, through a mutual friend. I pitched him on the idea of H1, and he was sold. And that's how we started this. Okay. That's, that sounds straightforward. So what is the idea of H1? The, idea for H, the original idea for H1 was... Um, LinkedIn meets Zoom info for doctors. It's create profiles and a network around doctors. The new idea, uh, or how's it, how's it grown since then? 
Um, it's still everything you want to know about every doctor in the world, but it's really like organizing healthcare professional information, uh, both the doctors and all their research and everything around the medicine that they do as well. Um, so it's ex expanded since then. But the original idea hasn't really changed too much. It's just gotten bigger um, since we started H1 four years ago. And, you know, when you started, you weren't the first ones with an idea to try to organize information about about physicians. You know, it's a well-established market. Uh, there's customers for it. It's not that, it's not something where people say, oh, I, I had never heard of that idea or I, I never would buy it. So, you know, what was different about what you, what you thought of in the first place or did you just execute it differently or what was, you know, what was the missing yeah. in the market? So uh, half the game is luck and half the game is timing. And so we got lucky and there was good timing. So during, when ACA got passed, Obamacare, uh, CMS did really innovative things. Uh, this guy named Anish Chopra did it. Uh, now I learned in hindsight. He made a lot of healthcare information a lot more public around physicians. Like it, and what happened after the US government did it is the rest of the world started to follow suit. Uh, so the government actually innovated. Uh, so they made inf information around which physicians work with which pharma companies, uh, information, information around like patients, types of patients these physicians see. And so access to this information become a lot more, became a lot more available. In hindsight, I realized this, but so when we started H1, it was like, the iron was hot and uh, we were able to, the uniqueness we brought is we have this global platform of about 10 million healthcare professionals. Nobody before that even touched the size and scale and scope that we did. Uh, and so we got lucky with the world is moving towards greater access and transparency to information around doctors and healthcare information. Uh, so we got lucky with timing and then we half, and then the other half of the game is execution. The idea is 1%, 49% luck and timing, 50% execution. And so we just executed better. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, that it makes sense to uh, to do that. I mean, clearly the you know right place at the right time is uh, is pretty important, and that does explain how there's you know just a whole new world of information that was uh, that was opening up. So everybody was starting from not from square one, but it's not as though someone could have had a ten year head start. Uh, on no, it was it was really like a two to three year head start. So there were companies that started like two to three years before us. Twenty fourteen is when you could should have, should like should have really started. Yeah. And so now publicly traded companies like Definitive Healthcare, Komodo Health, they started just a couple of years before us. But there's a whole generation of companies that came up came up around the time that we came up, and uh, it's transforming like digital digital te tech and healthcare right now. Well, Komodo is a hard one to copy because you, you have to have the same hairstyle as the CEO, and I I, <laughs> I don't know if you could pull it off. I certainly couldn't. I can't pull, pull up a ponytail like that. A little, no, no, no. that's a tough be, one. It'd be tough. It could, get, it could get caught also like in the subway door or something as you're going out. So uh, we'll have to be careful with that one. So what are the things that you're that you're working on now? I saw I saw some mention about future proofing of clinical trials with some uh, data intelligence platforms. What is that? He's that out for yeah, me. What, what does that, that about? So imagine you could find out everything about every doctor in the world. Take it to give a doctor. The patients they see, the types of patients they see, the doctor's race, the language they speak, the research that they're doing. Uh, if they post on social media, what they think about the latest medicine and, and science. Uh, that's important for a lot of different people. It's important if you're a patient trying to find the right doctor to go see. What do they focus on? Are they good at anxiety? Are they good at major depressive disorder? Um, like, are they, are they good at all those things? You want to know what, if I'm Hispanic and I only speak Spanish, you want to know what language they speak. So it's good for patients. It's good for pharma companies too. If I'm running a clinical trial and I'm trying to recruit Hispanic patients, I got to make sure my doctors speak Spanish. Uh, if I'm trying to recruit like a, a healthcare professional, a doctor that's good at running clinical trial, one if they run successful ones. So everything you want to know about doctors. And so we have different ways, different users that use our product. And so one of them are folks trying to run a clinical trial. And we help them answer the question of which doctor should run it, which just sounds like a basic question. It's actually really complex. You need to make sure they 
doctor sees patients that are eligible. So if you're running a clinical trial in atopic dermatitis for 65 to 85-year-olds, make sure they see patients that are 65 to 85. If you're trying to make sure it's a representative clinical trial, which means it's not just uh, white males running the trial or patients, uh, make sure that you're representative and you use our information to do that. If you want to make sure it's not just run in the United States, you got to use this information. And so uh, we are transforming the way that life sciences companies uh, pick investigators and health and doctors to run their clinical trials, making them use. They're so much more informed with the information we have around these doctors. Uh, how does that come into play? You know, in an environment where there's a lot of disruption at the moment. You know, we hear about obviously there's uh, some terrible things going on in. Uh, in the middle of Europe uh, at yeah. the moment, and and some of those were actually places where there's a lot of clinical trials that were that were starting. Do you have a, a role? We do. We have a pretty big big role in this. So there, there weren't as many in in Ukraine. There's a lot of manufacturing, like uh, creating the pills. In Russia, yeah. there were a lot of study, clinical trials and sites to recruit patients there. So obviously, those are all shut down now. And so uh, every day that a clinical trial is running, that there's not recruiting patients, it's they're burning money as a pharma yeah. company. Big uh, money. Big money, hundreds of millions, yeah. really yeah. big money, depending on the type of cancer or GI, whatever. Uh, and so a lot of pharma companies called us and said, I'm shutting down my Russia sites. Where, where can I find these patients? Where are the doctors? Where are the hospitals? Where should I do this? And so yeah. we got a lot of phone calls like that, uh, given the situation in Russia and Ukraine right now. And what else, what are, what are the other areas of, uh, of focus for the company? Where, where are you adding value? Who, who are you interacting with? Yeah, uh, great question. So. Really, we're across the healthcare ecosystem. So we this past year, we launched a product so to help patients find the right doctor to go see, which is so powerful. Um, we're powering insurance companies find a doctor pages. You might have been to it. I don't know what insurance everyone's listening to has, but if you go to like Aetna or Cigna's find a doctor page, not that useful, not that great information. Uh, so it, you don't know if it's the right phone number. You don't know what they clinically focus in. You don't know anything really. And so we're helping power those pages so patients find the right doctor to go see. That's like a, a big initiative, helping clinical trials teams find the right doctor to run a clinical trial. Another one, a company we just partnered with and acquired, uh, knowing what doctors think about the latest medicine and science. Wouldn't it be nice to know yeah. if your doctor has faculty, faculty opinions? Op yeah. Is that one faculty? Faculty opinions. Yeah. I, lo I love the name of that company faculty opinions, you know, so it's so opinionated and just, I think FO is a nice uh, moniker for it FO as well. is a very nice moniker. It's, it's like a, it's really crazy in this world. Like my doctor prescribes me a drug without faculty opinions. I don't know what other doctors think about it. I could look on yeah. WebMD, but now you could go to faculty opinions as we're making it um, widely available and be able to look at it there. And so it, it's really everything you want about doctors. And, and so some of the big initiatives around clinical trials, helping patients find the right doctor to go see, understanding what doctors think about the latest science in medicine. Um, those are some of the big areas. So how does it work? Uh, how does faculty opinions uh, come together? And how is it different from just say like a, a focus group or just asking you know 10 random doctors what they think? Great question. So uh, it, the way it works is, on faculty opinions, we have different topic areas that doctors, really biologists and doctors, so it's, I think, our support, uh, cover. And so they could cover like eczema, or they could cover lung cancer, they could cover whatever, early stage biology. Uh, they invite, we invite the most prestigious academic or scientist or doctor. We have eight Nobel Prize laureates today on faculty opinions, and then they invite their peers. And so for a given topic like eczema, you don't just have like 10 random docs on eczema. You have the most prestigious 
the creators of eczema cream type doctors uh, on faculty opinions. And whenever there's new science that comes out or medicine that comes out, they would write their recommendations about what they think about it. If it's good, if it's bad, all these things on faculty opinions. Uh, so it's an invite-only community. Uh, you have to be invited. It's actually pretty prestigious to be included as a faculty member. And then they write these recommendations about the latest science and medicine that comes out on faculty opinions. How would that be different from, say, up-to-date? Uh, great question. Um, up-to-date is like, um, it's more curated content by medical writers. Yeah. Um, it's more like a publication. Uh, this is a, this is more like Rotten Tomatoes for medicine and science, mm -hmm. where you would see this new publication and they would write, really good for teaching. Here are the reasons. Efficacy is good. Uh, breakthrough science. You should really read this paper. Up to date is more like you would search ankylosis spondylitis and you would find all the latest pubs and information around it. This is a lot more like reviews and recommendations around science. I like the rotten tomatoes. That way I go on and make sure not to take any drug that's less than a 90%. But I want to know like the critics rating and the audience rating too. So do you have the audience part? We don't of have too? the audience part. This is more like, uh, uh, oh, that's funny. That's a good example. This is more like a New York Times book review. The best, best bit analogy. You only get the, the critics. Now, let me go back to the one you, you were talked about, the find a doctor pages on the, on the health plans. Why is it so hard to have an accurate physician directory? It's impossible uh, without H1. So uh, CMS did a study. Uh, it's a crazy stat. 46% of them are inaccurate. So that's about half. You go to a directory of doctors, half of them are wrong on your insurance website. It's brutal. Uh, they just passed legislation January 1st where you get penalized as a, health, as a health plan, as an insurance company, if it's inaccurate, called the No Surprise Act. Why is it so hard? So a few different things. Doctors don't just work. I work at H1. I don't work at five companies. Doctors don't work that way. They have privileges and affiliations at many different addresses and organizations, mostly. Most of them have like more than one address. The question is, where are they really seeing patients? What's the phone number to call the doctor to book an appointment to see patients? Are they currently accepting patients? Uh, th those are like really hard questions to answer. And yeah. the doctor's busy, so they don't want to put it in. Uh, yeah. And so it, it's actually, it sounds simple, but it's actually a pretty hard data problem to crack. I know it's been a, it's been a difficult one. I mean, partly, partly you can see it that physicians are not necessarily that good at, at things like you know, branding and making information available. I think half the, you know, my, my doctor's practice is called Healthcare Associates. You know, what a name. <laughs> <laughs> the one with SEO with that name. It's, yeah. it's like, oh, that's everybody. Oh, it's like 50,000 doctors work at Healthcare Associates or, you know, associates in gastroenterology. Yeah. So you could have any of those. Now, I think you have also, in addition to this acquisition, I saw a new solution called Precise. That's have we already the, talked about that? Or that's that's the, the, yeah, that's the health plan patient. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Well, precise makes sense. All right. So you you were you were recently I don't know how recent it was, but you uh, you were named a thirty under thirty, oh, yeah. which is great. It's like how low does it go? Like five under five. It's but the anyway, most embarrassing you... award. You would if you read the Slack messages within our company after that came out, it'd be like, my son graduated high school before you were born. How old am I? Like eight horrible yeah. things. Uh, yeah. Funny when it came out. Well, it's one of those things where you know it's like you can't get away from it. So, so congratulations. I'll just say, and I'm not, I'm not on Slack. I'm too old for that, you know. <laughs> but um, actually, I find it too, and I don't like the little knock knock sound that it makes. So oh, yeah, that's why yeah. I don't use it. I guess you could probably adjust you could silence that. that. <laughs> but uh, you actually had an interview where you talked about some of the lessons learned about thirty under thirty. And I thought it was actually worthwhile and worth, uh, you know, of course, worth giving you a hard time about, but. 
you know, what were some of the kind of the key takeaways that you had there and some, some advice for, you know, younger entrepreneurs? Um, I, I, it's funny with all the things going on. I remember writing that article. I don't actually yeah. remember what I wrote. So I can, I'm either going to answer well, what I said or something different. So. Yeah, that's, that's fine. So, so, so one of the, you know, one of the things that struck me was just about when, when you're, you know, when you're a younger founder, uh, you need to be managing people. Uh, most of many of whom are going to be older than you. And and one thing was about you know not hiring all your twenty one year old friends, yeah. But hiring thirty one year old people you didn't you didn't know that that was the part of it I thought that was quite uh, you know interesting to to reflect it's on. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll share I'll share my experience with that. Um, at Research Connection, I had no money, and nobody's dumb enough to go work at a company run by a twenty one year old that they're not going to get paid that much, and there's not much money behind it. So who does that? Your friends, because it's fun. Uh, yeah, and you create this really amazing culture, and so you want to replicate that culture and scale that culture. But it's hard when you hire professionals. You don't know your friends. You're similar to you talk the same language on the same wavelength. All those things with people off the street that you interview, you don't know. It's a lot harder to get that right after speed dating, which interviews basically are. Yeah. Um, it, it's really good to hire your friends, but the, the real thing that you want to be able to do is define the culture, define the values force that into the interview process and make sure that everybody that you're interviewing fits that criteria. And it's basically like hiring friends. You're just like hiring people that you know you're gonna get along with and have fun with. There's truth to experience and there's truth to skills and there's truth to muscle memory that comes with hiring seasoned professionals that fit that same culture and values that, that you had when you were just with your friends and buddies starting the company. Yeah, there's another element about sort of, you know, work-life balance and, uh, you know, how to, how to think about that in terms of if oh. you're, you're on the younger side, you know. See, I read your article. I mean, I, I believe it. you wrote it. I, it's like I when I'm talking. That's, I'm that's one of my favorite myself, quotes, but, by the yeah. way. The because yeah. you're up in Boston by Mimo Maimonides. You know yeah. where that came from? The Guide for the Perplexed by Maimonides, right. where he says uh, the goal of life is to be balanced, but sometimes in life you need to be imbalanced for a short period of time to come balanced for longer, which I believe in and I believe is true. Uh, and so, like, I'm experiencing that now. I grinded like you would never believe. Yeah. Seven to midnight for five to seven years of my life. Seven a.m. to midnight every day. Um, yeah. And you can't really do that when you have a newborn. And you no. can't really do that if you want to not get divorced. Uh, and so, get it, uh, but I had to do that in balance and put in those hours and grind away because I didn't know anything and I had to learn and I had to be out there and I had to engage. Um, so I was imbalanced, very imbalanced. And my friends and my family would t tell me that, like, you work too hard. I'm like, but I like it and I, I think I'm doing it right. Uh, yeah. But now there's more balance, and I, I believe that's true um, in life. Yeah, good. So speaking of balance, do you have time to read any uh, any books? Do you have any books that you would uh, that you would recommend to our listeners, or to save them time, recommend you know that they stay away from? <laughs> what am I reading now? I'm reading two books. I'm reading Crime and Punishment. So I didn't really I didn't do, do too well in, in high school, so I skipped all the books. So like yeah. I, I I read like amazing high school books, and I realized the books they teach you to they tell you to read in high school are actually good books. Like Great Gatsby, it's amazing, and yeah. uh, Crime and Punishment's a very good book. It's very sad, but I'm reading Crime and Punishment right now. That that's the one. I it's 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 very yeah. gut wrenching and sad, uh, and it reminds me of the war going on now in, in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. But that's one where I would recommend it if nobody read those in high school and skipped all the high school books like me. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a, that's a good one to recommend. All right, uh, that sounds that sounds good. Well, I think I've got like most of my questions uh, answered, and and uh, you know, really at the high end, more than that, like a D would only be sixty percent. So you're at least at I would say B minus. <laughs> answer at least eighty percent of my questions today. Uh, so that was good. So I'm gonna say 
Ariel Katz, CEO of H1, and so much more. Thanks for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.